1: Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... Will the world's largest AI chip find buyers?
2: There is uh, any number of companies like pharmaceutical firms or, or the oil majors or any company that needs a lot of computing power kind of to crunch data and, and, and come up with uh, predictions of where to find oil or stuff like that.
1: And Apple enters the credit card market.
3: It's supposed to be a sort of predominantly digital card. Uh, you get higher sort of cash back for using Apple pay to pay for purchases. And a lot of the interaction with the uh, credit card is done through the app. And it's sort of very intuitively designed, very easy to use as you would expect from a sort of Apple product.
1: But first, Germany's central bank has warned that the country could be about to tip into recession. The economy shrank very slightly in the second quarter, the worst performance of any Eurozone member. And now the Bundesbank has warned that it expects performance to remain lacklustre and German output to continue to decline. I'm joined now by Henry Kerr, the economics editor at The Economist, who's been looking at what all of this means for the German economy. Hello, Henry. Hello. It was very slight, this decline in the, in the last quarter, just 0.1%. Why is the Bundesbank so worried?
4: So although the fall in GDP was fairly uh, shallow, as you say, the fall in German manufacturing output has been pretty great. And industrial production in June was over 5% lower uh, than a year earlier, which is the steepest decline since the financial crisis. So what's going on is you have one part of the economy which really seems to be falling off a cliff. And you've got another part of the economy, which is uh, uh, services and retail trade and the labour market that seems to be doing a lot better. But I think people are thinking that The domestic economy can't survive trading conditions in the whole world that are so bleak on an ongoing basis, because that's what's dragging down manufacturing.
1: So it's manufacturing that is being driven down. And how much of that can be blamed on the global trade climate, and in particular, the US-China trade conflict?
4: I think quite a lot. And I think uh, the uncertainty over Brexit is having an effect as well. But that said, you know, the European economy has not been in a great state for a long time. And financial markets have driven the yields on German bonds to incredible lows below zero. So the German government could borrow for 30 years uh, at an interest rate of less than zero now, which is quite incredible. And that signals real long run pessimism, really, about the prospects for economic growth in the eurozone. Uh, So there's a sense of uh, long term malaise, which is combined with this uncertainty this year over trade, which is causing all these jitters about recession. Uh, So there's a a lot to worry about if you're in Europe, and especially if you're in Germany right now.
1: So if much of this is down to external factors, what can Germany's government and the central bank do to ease the situation?
4: Well, we're probably going to see central bank easing from the uh, ECB Uh, when it meets in September, people are expecting more monetary stimulus. Uh, The issue is that interest rates in the eurozone are already below zero. So the central bank's constrained. It can't cut interest rates much further without provoking uh, banks or the public to hold cash, which of course gives you a guaranteed zero percent interest rate. So what can the ECB do? It can do more bond buying, but that's politically controversial in Europe because it's seen as a transfer from northern states to southern states. There are legal limits on it. So monetary policy on the whole is looking quite constrained. Germany's fiscal policy, however, is not at all constrained. It's been extremely uh, prudent uh, with its fiscal policy in the last decade. It's uh, pursued surpluses overall for several years now, and it has plenty of fiscal space. So if it wanted to do a fiscal stimulus uh, to boost its economy, uh, it definitely could. The issue is that uh, whether it wants to. uh, Germany is uh, traditionally very sceptical of fiscal stimulus. Now, we have had some comments from the finance minister, Olaf Scholz, suggesting that Germany could spend an additional 50 billion euros uh, if it needed to. uh, But he hasn't really displayed much indication that he wants to or that he wants to get out ahead of the economic downturn and, and put that stimulus into place now. It seems more like a comment about the automatic increase in the deficit that would happen were there a recession, you know, Germany could afford it, which everyone you already. Uh, so I think there's a real question of whether Germany will be willing to, to do a fiscal stimulus. And that's what people are wondering.
1: If they were to persuade themselves that a fiscal stimulus were justified, how would they spend it?
4: Germany has uh, very great infrastructure needs. Because it's been targeting for so long balanced budgets, Uh, it's starved its infrastructure of of needed uh, maintenance. And so, for instance, 11% of bridges in Germany aren't up to scratch. They've been suffering with train delays. They don't have as much uh, fast mobile data coverage as many other countries. So there's clearly uh, some scope to boost infrastructure spending. Uh, The problem is, and many countries find this when there's an economic downturn and and they realise they have infrastructure needs and it makes sense to do the spending then and there, is it's quite difficult to get infrastructure projects going at the drop of a hat. And so I think the case for infrastructure spending is best seen as a sort of long term need for a long term programme. Germany should probably spend more on infrastructure uh, as a share of GDP permanently. If you wanted to boost the economy tomorrow, you'd have to do something probably that you could do a bit faster, uh, like tax cuts, or like government spending of other means. So the perfect approach Uh, in my view, would probably be some balance, a a long-term programme to boost infrastructure, combined with some sort of temporary stimulus to see off the downturn.
1: Do we expect this split between manufacturing, heavy industry and the services sector to continue? Or is it the expectation that services, retail and so on will start to follow the other sectors down? in the economy.
4: I think there's scepticism that you can have too much divergence for too long. Uh, The reason retail trade has been reasonably strong uh, is ultimately because the labour market's strong. Unemployment in Germany is only 3.1%. It's exceptionally low. And that may be one reason why the average German voter or consumer might not think there's much reason yet to do uh, a stimulus. The economic downturn isn't showing up in the labour market. That said, forecasts now are beginning to show that unemployment will increase you would have thought that if industrial production uh, falls so sharply that eventually that's going to translate into job losses and eventually that might then have a sort of knock-on effect on the rest of the economy were you to continue to see Uh, such bad manufacturing data and such bad industrial production data, you would expect eventually to see some some spillover onto the rest of the economy. The question is whether policymakers can give sufficient help to the economy before that happens or not, and whether they're willing to.
1: And some spillover presumably also to the rest of the Eurozone economy. I mean, How worried are politicians in other capitals about the German economy?
4: Uh, Well, Germany is the motor of Europe. It's uh, Europe's largest economy and its downturn is in large part behind the Uh, slow down in overall European growth. There's no doubt that were Germany to take aggressive action to see off its downturn, that would uh, have positive spillover effects for other countries. And of course, some countries uh, elsewhere in the eurozone, notably Italy, couldn't really do a fiscal stimulus if they wanted to, because they're so indebted and financial markets don't believe that they have fiscal space to to pay back new debts. Germany does, but that's part of the reason, I think, that Germany uh, is more suspicious of doing fiscal stimulus because it's partly seen as as them coming to the rescue of other countries in the Eurozone who have not been so... prudent with their fiscal policy. So I think it's definitely the case that the eurozone is one monetary zone. It's very closely uh, linked economy and the fates of the different countries within it are closely linked. Uh, Unfortunately, there's not quite the sense of political unity there uh, to fight a downturn across borders. It tends to be a matter of political controversy. Henrika, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: And you can read more on this and other stories in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And next, in the past, the technology industry has been obsessed with creating the smallest possible chips. But that's changing. Cerebras Systems, a California-based startup, has unveiled an AI computer chip, which it claims is the world's largest But who will want to buy these chips? Ludwig Ziegler is The Economist's U.S. technology editor. Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Simon. Um, So can you tell us a bit more about this chip? I mean, how big is it? Why is it so significant?
2: It's quite big. I would say uh, you can almost kill a dog with it. So when I met the uh, founder of Cerebras, Andrew Feldman, he pulled a a kind of a almost iPad-sized piece of plexiglass out of his backpack and he showed it to me, and that's the chip. It's kind of the biggest chip you can possibly make with today's technology. And the reason he's doing it, he just wants to have the kind of the fastest chip to crunch through numbers and uh, uh, help train models, artificial intelligence models for new types of services like facial recognition or uh, to find new drugs. Well, I I hope I'm right in assuming
1: that neither he nor you actually want to kill any dogs, but I'm still slightly baffled. I thought the, the whole point of chips was that they got smaller and smaller, more and more information was stacked on them. Why did they suddenly have to
2: go big? For the past 40 years or so, the idea was indeed to make chips smaller and smaller. And that's what what was called Moore's law. So Moore's law, which is actually not a law, but kind of uh, an observation, a statistical observation is that the number of transistors you can pack onto the chips doubles roughly every two years. and, and, And so the computing power doubles roughly every two years. And that's how the industry worked. And everything kind of got coordinated around that goal. Now, what has happened in the past few years is that that Moore's law, that Moore's law is kind of slowing down. So, and as that happened, also AI, artificial intelligence, became more important, and that means that there is much more demand on a computing power. So, to come up with good AI services, you have to crunch a lot of data, and to crunch a lot of data, you need a lot of number-crunching power, and that demand has been exploding much, much faster than Moore's Law. So, the slowdown of Moore's Law and the increasing demand uh, on computing power has meant that chip designers had to be more inventive and come up with new ideas. And one way of trading very uh, powerful chips is to make them bigger, and hence Cerebrus.
1: I suppose we don't know yet exactly what one of these will cost. But what sort of price range are we looking at? I mean, presumably, we're talking purely about a, a business to business venture here.
2: Yes, I don't think you, you're going to have a, a Cerebrus powered uh, personal computer on your desk anytime soon. Uh, uh, so yes, we're talking millions and they haven't uh, told me how expensive it will be. Also, I should add that so Cerebrus hasn't just designed chip. Chip, but an entire computer around its microprocessor to optimize it. Again, so, so this is a highly specialized computer to crunch reams of data for certain applications, and uh, so it will probably be bought by cloud computing uh, providers like Amazon Web Services or uh, Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud, and then there is uh, any number of companies that may be interested in that ship like uh, pharmaceutical firms or or the oil majors or any company that needs a lot of computing power kind of to crunch data and and, and come up with uh, predictions uh, uh, where to find oil or, or stuff like that.
1: And as for Cerebras itself, as a startup, is it looking for a buyer or does it think it can become big on its
2: own? I think they would like to become big uh, uh, on their own, but but you never know. I mean, so they have developed this chip and, and, and it's quite impressive. And, and I went to a conference at Stanford University here in Silicon Valley, uh, Hot Chips uh, is its name, and people were kind of quite impressed by the achievement. But then kind of once they have developed it, they have to sell it and, and they have to manufacture it. And it's sometimes a very often the bigger challenge for these chips startups. And it may be that if, if things don't go that well, that the whole thing will be bought by an Intel or an NVIDIA or what have you. So big, uh, bigger chip companies and, and, and integrated into their systems.
1: So uh, hot chips was hot this year
2: then yeah hot chips uh, was was very hot I mean also kind of they fed uh, hot wings uh, to attendees, kind of very spicy chicken wings uh, at, at the party but it was also hot because you could see kind of the end of Moore's law I mean I used to go to chip conference which were kind of a rather boring affair where it was all about kind of packing chips more tightly and at this chip conference you had lots of booths with startups different companies trying uh, and, and showing off their latest AI chips so what has happened is even though Moore's law was very important and and has given us smartphones and personal computers and all that. It also was sort of a straitjacket for the industry. And now, with that gone, there is kind of this creativity uh, in the industry. New stuff is being tried. Uh, they reintroduce analog chips and, and combine them with digital chips. So, so there's lots happening, and, and, and which, which makes it really interesting to go to these conferences again. Murphy, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon.
1: And finally, Apple has announced a foray into the credit card market with a shiny titanium card for your wallet and a digital one for contactless payments on your phone. But how do you get your hands on one? And is it worth it? Alice Fullwood's The Economist, US finance correspondent, currently on the West Coast. Hello, Alice. Hello, Simon. Alice, so how's Apple's card different from other credit cards? And how is it different from Apple Pay? Is Apple in competition with itself on this one?
3: Well, actually, the Apple Card is being launched in part to encourage more customers to use Apple Pay. Um, so the card itself is distinct from Apple Pay. It's, it's a credit card. It works um, in the same way that a lot of other credit cards do in that there's a sort of an issuing bank behind it. And then it's the vessel that you use to pay merchants. Um, and Apple Pay is sort of the technology by which retailers um, interface with customers. But the card does work in a sort of a few different ways than existing credit cards. Um, for example, it's supposed to be a sort of predominantly digital card. Uh, you get higher sort of cash back for using Apple Pay to pay for purchases. And a lot of the interaction with the uh, credit card is done through the app. And it's sort of very intuitively designed, very easy to use, as you would expect from a sort of Apple product. Um, the other big difference is that they have decided to forego charging sort of any type of fees, sort of balance fees or transfer fees. And instead, they're just going to, their sort of revenues from the card will just come from interest payments and interchange fees.
1: And you mentioned that they were giving cash back?
3: They are, yes. The sort of key perk of this credit card is that you get cash back on various purchases. So um, if you buy Apple products, you get the sort of juiciest cash back rate. Uh, You'll get 3% for buying an Apple product with Apple Pay. And um, you'll get 2% for paying with Apple Pay anywhere in America. Um, and it turns out that sort of sixty five percent of retailers in the states now accept Apple pay, so you, you should be able to use that quite widely. Uh, I expect that Apple is sort of hoping that the number will rise as the sort of Apple card becomes more popular, and you 'll get one percent cash back if you use a sort of physical titanium card um, in store.
1: You mentioned that it's going to be backed by by banks. I mean does that mean that it's then caught up in the rather cumbersome traditional u s payment system with high interchange fees and so on?
3: Yes, yeah, so the card is backed by Goldman Sachs, and actually this is their first credit card as well. Um, I guess the reason for that is that Apple did not want to become a bank itself, and you know in- incur all of the sort of regulation that might come with that. Uh, in terms of the sort of slow payment side and interchange system, I mean it is you know it is using Goldman Sachs to issue it, so it does need to partner with an actual bank. It will use um, Mastercard for the interchange process. So, you know, it hasn't managed to replace any of the key parts of the sort of credit card system. Um, instead, but Apple is just the company that you interact with um, when you're sort of using the card and paying your bill and things.
1: But it's still using the payment system. So if it's showing you what you've just spent, that won't exactly correspond necessarily with what's in your bank or will it? Because there'll be a delay.
3: Well, actually, the way that the card will work is whenever you do a transaction, it will immediately appear in the app. And, you know, it might still be pending through the banking system, but they will record it immediately and and display it to you immediately. So I guess there could be a discrepancy between, you know, your sort of actual balance that had cleared on the card and what you've spent. But what's reflected in the app will be what you've actually spent. Um, At the same time, whenever you sort of go to look at the transactions in the app, there's a lot of information there about exactly what you've done. So, for example, if you'd spent something at, say, CVS, then when you clicked on that transaction, you would see a map that showed you the exact CVS that you were spending at. So it should be easier to sort of pick up on transactions that look unfamiliar because there's a lot of information provided. Um, But it is all provided in real time.
1: How much of a change in business model is this for Apple? Does it mean that it's trying to become more of a a kind of full service company along the lines of the Chinese firms like uh, WeChat with WeChat Pay or Alibaba with Alipay and so on?
3: It certainly does seem like a departure from the usual types of products that Apple's launched. But what they were saying um, when I spoke with their representatives earlier was their goal with Apple Pay is to try and sort of make the wallet an entirely digital experience. So, you know, you, that your phone will basically become your wallet. And in order to do that, Instead of having an app where you can put your existing credit cards in, they thought it would be you know, better and slicker to integrate the card more fully with the phone. And so everything that you could do that you would want to do in your credit card, you could do through your One Wallet app on your phone. It does sort of you know, seem similar to the moves that tech companies have made elsewhere.
1: The really terrifying thing about this, Alice, is what happens if you lose your phone?
3: You won't be able to use any of the credit cards stored on your phone unless you sort of are able to log in as per usual. So as long as your phone is locked um, either by sort of touch print or or face ID, then no one will be able to use it and you should be able to log on to your sort of iCloud account and shut everything down um, remotely. So uh, that shouldn't be too much of a problem. And if you lose the physical card, uh, sort of one of the features of it is that it doesn't have any information on it. There's no card number there. So Apple does think the incidence of fraud on its cards will be lower because it's sort of better protected.
1: And how easy is it to get one of these cards? Are there Are credit criteria quite strict, or are they just going to use the normal bureaus?
3: Goldman Sachs is doing the credit checking part of the process, and so far it seems as though it's fairly standard. The standard application for a credit card, you have to put in your details and your social security number and things. In terms of literally getting hold of it today, um, Apple has launched the card um, in beta for some select users, um, employees of both companies, and some members of the public earlier in August. Uh, the Atom card itself will launch to the wider public in late August. Uh, that is what Tim Cook has, has said. So it should be available for most people soon.
1: Are you going to get one, Alice?
3: Uh, I have actually been given the sort of data testing stage, and it is quite nice to use, but uh, we'll have to see whether it replaces all of my other credit cards.
1: Alice, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long, and in London...